0: Before we get to the last in this series called Determining This Morning, let me just sort of off the cuff here share something with you. Um, Elaine and I have been in Israel three different times. Elaine hates to travel, but she'd go back tomorrow if we could. And I would join her. There is a literal place in Israel today that's been known since Bible times as the valley of the shadow of death. If you stand on top of that lofty hillside and look down into the valley, what you see are crevices and shadows on both sides of that valley. And in Bible times, our guide told us each time we were there that thieves and wolves and the enemies would hide in the shadows and come and devour any who were walking through it. It was a very dangerous place. Our Lord well said and I thought of this when I thought of Alan this morning. Uh, our Lord through David's pen conveyed this great truth to us. Yea, though I walk Through the valley of the shadow, with all its enemies, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. That's one of the most comforting passages the older I get. One of the most comforting passages in all the Bible. Elaine's mother lay dying in the hospital at least we thought she was going to die at that point and she wanted to hear the 23rd Psalm so over and over and over we quoted that Psalm including yea do I walk through the valley a nurse slipped in and said to me you need to stop quoting that passage I said why she said she'll stop fighting if you quote that passage it won't give her hope I wanted to say, oh, dear lady, you don't get it. When we, as God's people, come to that point, it's a valley filled with sorrow, but on the other side of that sorrow is great joy and great delight and great peace and great comfort. And the greatest comfort is knowing what we just sang, I will rise, the great will not win, And I know you're praying for Alan and the family. I just wanted to add that two cents. Hope it encourages you. As that text again and again encourages me. Let's stop and pray one more time for Alan and the family and then ask God to speak to our hearts from his book. You're so gracious, Father, to give us hope even when the greatest enemy, death, seems to be winning. Yet death has lost its sting. And we value that more every day of our lives, especially as we see others whom we love walking through it. And, uh, Father, you have a way of taking that and those whom we love in this life and depositing what we treasure in the next life to the point that the next life seems more like home than this life. And so it's our prayer that you would uniquely, as you're calling Alan home, Give him, my Father, great grace and peace and all the family around him. What a joy to know that one of your choice saints is walking through this valley with you at his side. Father, be his guide in these moments. Guard his mind and heart. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of opening your book today. Help us to do an effective job at not only communicating truth, but help us especially to do a good job at listening to truth. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say, eyes to see wondrous things out of this, your law, in Jesus' name. And all who care to say, amen. Only you Michigan people would understand the spiritual two-track that we've been talking about. I had no idea what a two-track was until a little over a week ago. It's this narrow road that we're on. And on this narrow path that begins at the new birth and ends whenever God decides to call us home, on this narrow two-track, what I want to emphasize today is this. There are people that intersect with us On this path. There are others that we run into as we walk this path. And the question that we're asking today is, how do we determine what kind of responses to give to those people whom we walk with? Now watch this. We learned last Lord's Day from Paul's pen to the church at Corinth. We learned that Paul said there were three categories of people. There are the natural Those are the kind of people who are far from God and have no idea why you give ten percent of your your money to the Lord. Right? They have no idea, they do not understand far for they are far from God and do not have the Holy Spirit. There are the carnal. These are people who know the Lord, who have who are on this path, but they act as if they are not. They live life still like the natural, as if it's all about them. And then there are the spiritual, those whom God breathes into his truth. That truth is transforming them, and they are walking by that truth and wanting to be a help to all of us on this journey as we all are trying to walk by that truth. So there are the natural, carnal, spiritual. Say it with me. Natural, carnal, Spiritual. Now, let's get the back three rows in with us. You ready? The astral, carnal, spiritual. Those we have to learn how to respond to. And if we don't know what category they're in, we will not know how to respond to them. Now, Jude is going to help us in this. While you find in your copy of the scriptures... Jude, and if you ask which chapter, that will tell me something about you. Jude, verses 22 and 23, will help us know how to respond to one of these categories of people. I will talk briefly about the other two with you, and we'll spend most of our time on one, the carnal. Let me set it up for you. Jude was a brother of our Lord, as was James. Jude and James, in growing up, uh, did not initially believe that he was who he claimed to be. Now, you just put yourself in their shoes. And that sibling you grew up with says to you, I'm the Son of God, the King of the Jews, the Messiah promised of old. I would have said to my sibling, yeah, right. Um, he had not yet performed miracles. Those waited until the last three and a half years of his life as an adult. So don't be too rough on his siblings for not believing and knowing and trusting in who he was for they had not yet seen those marvelous signs that validated that he was the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. Jude writes, now that he has, after the resurrection, fully and firmly committed himself forever to following his brother as the Messiah and Savior and Lord of the world. He's committed to follow him, and he writes to believers and says to them, basically, in general terms, no, in a specific phrase early in the book of Jude, This one challenge that is the very reason for the book. He says, contend for the faith. I wish I had time to park there. We contend for a lot of things. Seldom is it the faith. Hello? Would you admit that? Most churches do not have conversation and passionate conversation about faith theological or doctrinal issues. One thing I've kind of tried to bring the angst down about is we're beginning the search for your next pastor. Very few churches who are theologically conservative like this church, very few ever divide over theological issues. They do divide over other much lesser issues. You get that, right? And uh, that's a sad thing, by the way. That's not a compliment to the churches. And I've just come to say, Jude says, no, 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 it's not a matter of fighting over my personal preferences. It rather is a matter of standing up for, defending, and contending for the faith, the body of truth that Christ has delivered through his apostles and we hold in our hands today. Now, why do we need to contend for the faith? Jude goes on to say in the fourth verse, because certain people have crept in. Pretty interesting statement. What kind of people are they? Won't be on the screen for you, but I want you to see it. They are people who are like Cain, like Balaam, and like Korah. Every Jew would have understood what Jude was talking about when he said they're like these three. Cain was a self-righteous man. Balaam was a greedy man. Korah was a rebellious man. And he, by those three paradigms, those three men, illustrated the kind of people who will creep into the body of believers called the church. Self-righteous, sometimes greedy, sometimes rebellious. And then he adds to it this phrase, and it's not yet the text I want to use, but he adds these word pictures, not phrase, but these word pictures to it. These are hidden reefs, or if you will, they are spots at your love feasts. He describes them further. They are shepherds feeding themselves. They are, think about this, waterless Clouds must have been in Michigan. Think about it. They are fruitless trees, late uh, trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own chain. They are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And it is that kind of people, like Cain, like Balaam, like Korah, like he had just described in those word pictures. I wish I had time to go over each of them. He is saying those kinds of people will creep into the church. Now, we all understand and know that every church is filled with perfect people. Right? Look at the person next to you and say, I'm so glad you're perfect. <laughs> Why aren't you talking to each other? I don't care. Think... <laughs> Church, here's the reality. There is no such thing as perfect people, but Paul is going, or Jude, is going well beyond imperfect people to people in that category we talked about a while ago. They are fully Carnal and not controlled by the Spirit of God. And there are those who believe he's talking about absolute apostates who don't even know the Lord. I don't view Jude that way. There are too many illustrations in it that talk about, and comments in it that talk about people who have infiltrated, who may well be God's people, but don't act like it at all. I want to pause here and just say this and then we'll read the text I wanted to get to. Beloved, I've learned in 44 years of ministry and being involved in interim ministry now for several years, I've learned that in our Western culture, we are right now parked at the greatest need in the American church. And that need, is for God's people to recognize the spiritual, the carnal, and the natural that may intersect with the church, family, and body. But I want to insert this footnote. You're looking at one who is sometimes carnal, and I need you to recognize that in me when it comes. And since we're not all perfect, do you not need to recognize that in each other? Hello? Don't you want help when you are walking as one who is natural, who really belongs, who appears natural, who really belongs to the Lord? We all need help. And when we don't help, Paul writes about it to the church at Corinth. That carnality doesn't just sit sour and soak or soak and sour. It doesn't do that. It infiltrates. It spreads itself like a little yeast leavens the whole lump. That carnality doesn't just sit there. It's why the church has got to wa- awaken in this culture and take Christianity seriously, and more than for the sake of brethren and all of us when we are not being spiritual, we need it for the sake of the far from God. For they look at us and they know. They know the hypocrisy of claiming to be one of his without walking like one of his. And So I've come with a sober and a serious heart, passionate about saying, learn how to respond to me to the brethren around you, to the people around you whom you love and learn to let them respond to you when they see you not walking in holy spiritual ways. Fair enough? Come on, talk with me. Fair enough? Fair enough. Let's move ahead then and ask the question, how do we respond to the carnal? This text answers it. Jude 22 and 23. On some have compassion, making a distinction, but others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now as I just said, that's a text that tells you how to respond to someone, to me, when I'm not acting spiritually and it's quite evident. You need to come to me and do what this text says do. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the natural. After this, I'll talk about the spiritual for a second. But let me just breathe through this. I don't have time. Each one of these takes a Sunday all by itself. But how to respond to the natural, let me just give you a sideline here and tell you how to do that. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in which Jesus gave a couple of ways to respond to the natural, to the far from God. If asked to go a mile, go, say it, two. Say what? Well, Well, who in the world would ask you to go a mile? Those in the first century culture understood that if a Roman soldier came up to them, and they did it especially to the Jews, because of their hatred for them. They came up to a Jew. They could take their uh, weaponry, they could take their bags and load them on the Jew as if he were a mule and say, By law, you are required to walk with me a mile. So, as a Jew who was a Christ follower, Christ said, When that pagan natural Fleshly Roman comes up to you and imposes that rule on you and his baggage on you. You walk that mile, but then you just keep going past the mile. You go a second mile. He added another, and it was this. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, give your cloak. That's like saying in our culture, if you are sued for your shirt... Don't just give him your shirt, give him your undershirt as well. That's literally what it is saying. Don't take the imagery any further than that, please. Now here's the deal. The Lord really wasn't talking about a specific rule. So you're a Christian if you go two miles. And you're a Christian if you give your undershirt, not just your shirt. Our Lord is talking about an attitude And the attitude is very simply this. That that which distinguishes the spiritual from the natural is a mindset that we call servanthood. A willingness to serve God and a willingness to serve others without giving any thought to self. You live like that... And it'll make a difference in the lives of the natural. That's how they will be one. And with Jesus, it was a show and tell. Show the attitude. And then you will have earned the right to tell the good news with the end result of the fire from God coming to him. That's how you respond to the natural. I'm going to take just enough time to share with you a quick story. Most of us were taught in our legalistic, well, if you have a background like mine, in our legalistic background, to just stay away from the far from God. Sure, bring them into church and tell them the gospel and hope they get saved. But the mindset attitude we were taught with our legalistic rule mindset instead of attitude mindset was basically, uh, when you get up here where I am in my spiritual condition, then you can be a part of us. That is not at all my beloved. What was the mindset of the Lord Jesus, right? right? Remember all the times they said of him? Look at him. He eats with sinners, the natural, the far from God. Years ago, lost people would call and say, I'm looking for a church to get married in and a pastor who will marry us. And my first reaction, sadly, For three decades of ministry was, no, I don't marry unbelievers to unbelievers. I just don't do that. And then it dawned on me one day, what on earth are you doing, Larry? You're expecting them to be up here where you are? And I started saying, sure, come in, let's talk about it. And I will share with you some foundational principles. And then you will decide by your responses to those principles whether you want to be married here or not. And it opened the door. The last young man I led to Christ, his name was James. His wife-to-be was Teresa. He came into the office. She was a believer. He was not. They wanted to know if they could use our beautiful building built in the 1800s, such a gorgeous auditorium, a wonderful place to get married. Well, there's a good foundation for a wedding. Make sure the building is cute. I sat down with him and said before, with both of them, before we talk about that, let me talk to you about what makes marriage work. is isn't the building, and it isn't a Bible-believing pastor. It's a vertical relationship that makes the horizontal relationship work. And can I tell you how, how, how to have that vertical relationship? James looked at me and said, yeah, but it won't do any good. I said, why? He said, because I'm an agnostic. I looked at him and I said, James, maybe that intimidates others, but that doesn't intimidate me. Tell me your story. And he talked about how horribly he'd been treated. In a number of evangelical churches. And I said, James, I don't want to talk to you about church. I'm not even trying to make you a member of this church. I want to talk to you about your vertical relationship with God. Within three counseling sessions, they were actually evangelistic sessions. He came to know Christ as his savior. Before I could marry them, his job took him away. They both moved 200 miles away, and they called back and said, we still want to come back and get married there. Had a wonderful time. Sharing God's truths that transformed his life, and in the end, he was a part of a church body and relationship. Why? Because somebody stopped and said, and I'm not holding myself up, please, because somebody just stopped and said it's about the vertical. My friend, if you don't know that, if you don't get that, if you're struggling with a horizontal relationship, we invite you today to accept the work of Christ on Calvary's cross. He died to give you a forever connection with the Father, and all you have to do is believe that. So what John says, just believe. Give your life and heart to Him. Let me know after the service. Let someone who invited you... Here, let them know that you today breathe that prayer and will rejoice with you. Here's the point. How do you respond to the natural? Oh, beloved, you evangelize them. You don't counsel them. They don't have the spirit and will never understand the truths of God until they know God. Hello? Tell them the story of Christ. Now, the text deals with responding to the carnal, and I, I got to fly here. There are three things the text says. Here's the first: Have mercy in verse 22 on those who doubt. Would you agree that doubting is a carnal state or attitude? You're not voting Baptist here. Come on, vote. Would you agree that doubting? Is a carnal state? Absolutely. Remember when the ship was being tossed by a raging sea in the storm? The disciples were afraid and they um, started rowing as hard as they could. And when that didn't work, they cast everything overboard and tried rowing some more, and they couldn't get anywhere and were about to perish in the storm. Someone remembered Christ is on board. Hmm, we've seen him do some pretty miraculous stuff. Just maybe he could help. They went to find him and he was asleep beneath the deck of the ship. They woke him up with a question that expressed immense doubt. King James, I, remember I said this way years ago. Carest thou not that we perish? How canst thou lie asleep? Great questions that exposed the heart of the disciples. They doubted God's care for them, that he loved them. He walked to the deck of the ship. He, in power, he waved his hand across, and with a mighty voice, he basically said, Wind and storm, peace, be still. And then he turned with that same voice and said, Why were you so fearful? And why were you so, watch it, faithless? Faith and doubt are opposite things. The carnal doubt. In the New Testament, there are a number of people that are called naive. And when truth is given and others push back on that truth... They are naive enough to think that what the error that is given them says sounds plausible. And they begin to doubt what they've been taught before. And that's what Jude is all about. Those who doubt, how do I respond to them? The carnal who are doubting, you don't kick them out. And you don't start pounding on them. You don't thump them over the head with truth. How do you handle those who are doubting? Very simply, in mercy you take all the time it takes to answer their questions with the truth. Pray the Spirit of God will help them see the light, not the darkness mixed with the light. Boy, those are the kind of people you love to spend all day, all night, whatever it takes with, time and again, to help bring them along, right? There are those whose carnality, though, go deep, goes deeper. Watch it. Save others, still others, who progressed in buying into error by snatching them out of the fire. We have some firemen in the church and some ex firemen. And uh, you know full well when the fire is blazing in the house, they don't climb up to the second floor risking their own life and limb and walk up to a person crouching in the corner down low with smoke up above them and flames around them and say, Could we make um, a toasted cheese sandwich before we blow this place? You no, know, you don't do that. Why? Because it's too dangerous a situation. What do they do? They walk in and see them crouch in the corner, unable to move. So they grab them by the uh, collar of the shirt and drag them across the wooden floor. And by the time they get them out, they drug them across the floor, down the stairs and out where they can breathe pure oxygen again. What do they look like by the time they get out? Soot all over them? Splinters where you have drugged them? Bruises from being bounced down the stairs? What's the point? But glad you saved them from the fire. And here's the point. Some have so bought into error, not just doubting, but are buying into it. It's at that point in time you need to have the spiritual wisdom to come alongside of them and snatch them out of the fire. Another phrase my baby boomer generation would have used back when I was a teenager is this, it's time to jerk their chain and just to say, my brother, I love you, but you are thinking wrong. Can I help? Will you let me speak truth into your life? I don't hear that kind of conversation much in the Church of Christ today, but this text says it clearly. There are some that need more than just answering questions. They need reproof for thinking and buying into You with me? And then the last, have mercy on those. I went the wrong way, sorry. To others show mercy, and it is merciful to do this, with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Hating the garment. Can I say that one more time? Hating the stained garment. That takes a different response. I think this is the kind of person who is not just bought into the truth but now is trying to sell it to others and impacting the body of Christ to the point where Jude says they must be stopped because you hate the stain that they're causing within the body. Now watch this. You don't hate them. You love them. You love them enough, and the body enough, and the fire from God enough. All that's built into this concept. You love them enough to pull from them, as uh, the Apostle Paul wrote. Said to them, basically, don't even eat with them. So strong is their carnality, their energy. So impactful on the body. Now, you got to know this. When the first century Jew, to whom Jude was writing, when the first century Jew said hating the garment, stained by the flesh, they knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about a garment that was worn by someone who had leprosy. And even to touch the stain on the garment could make you and the body that it touches leprous. If you care about the purity of the body, James says it is loving and it is merciful. And very few times does this need to be done, but sometimes carnal must be responded to by hating that garment that stains so much that you withdraw and separate from it. That's the Matthew 18 thing. That's the Romans thing. That's the Hebrews thing. All through the New Testament, the church is called to do that. Wow. Some tough stuff, huh? Hello? Hello? stuff enjoyable stuff huh I don't think so but stuff that those who are serious about the two track journey called the narrow way take seriously okay your turn how did we get there not your turn yet. How do you respond to the spiritual? I haven't addressed that yet. I, do, I can do this real fast. Lewis Schaeffer said this. A Christian is a Christian because he is rightly related to Christ. But he that is spiritual is spiritual because he is rightly related to the spirit. Stay with me on this. We learned what spiritual meant last Lord's Day. Spiritual is pneuma tikos. Two Greek words put together. Pneuma means breath. Tichos means from God. The Holy Spirit speaks, breathes into the mind and heart the truth of God into the spiritual person's mind and heart. And as he breathes in and speaks to that heart, that heart is exposed and transformed and is changing and becoming more like Christ, more spiritual all the time. Do you know who I want to speak into my life? Not the carnal who are all about themselves, like Cain and like uh, Balaam and like uh, Korah. Rather, I want the spiritual speaking into my life, and typically this is what I found. The carnal are the first to speak into your life. Hello? They're the first. They come with some form of supposed truth mixed with self-focused intent and expect you to be altered by that. And it's like, God give me the wisdom to know what that's being spoken into my life. What I so long for and sometimes it's like a humility that the spiritual have that they... So few times are willing to do it. And I'm calling you who are spiritual to do this for me, for each other, for the welfare of the church and the purity of the church. I want people who are hearing from God, who are being breathed upon by the spirit of God, and controlled by him. Those are the ones I want speaking into my life. You too? Speak to me, people of God, whatever God is teaching you. Teach me. Our body will be so strengthened as you are willing to do that. All right, now it is your turn. I lie not. So let's confess together before God. In fact, we'll just stand and make this confession with heads and hearts bowed. Let's confess together. We are all often carnal. In fact, read that prayer to God. You might want to say it like Isaiah said it of old just before we sing here. You might want to tell God I'm a man of unclean lips. Tell it. It's been a long time since you confess how unspiritual you often are. It's a great time to be honest with God. Read that prayer to him. And then admit to him the same thing Isaiah did. It's not just that I'm a man of unclean lips, but I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We're all in that same category once in a while. Have you made that confession to God? Now add to it this great concept. Let's make a covenant before God today. Just look on the screen one second. Let's make a covenant to be vigilant, to set out a guard for each other and watch for carnality in each other. Not with a mindset that says, na 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 nah, gotcha. But with a mindset that says, I love you. I love you enough to watch for any self-focused expression that I see in your life. And let's make a commitment then when we see it, not only to be vigilant to see it, but to be verbal when we see it in each other. Listen, you don't love me if you're going to other people and talking to them about me. Hello, I've lived that over 44 years of ministry now. I've lived in that kind of state in every place I've served. I hear about third and fourth and fifth hand what's being said. The scriptures are real clear. Don't do that about each other and to each other body of Christ be willing to be verbal to the very one whose heart you are grieving over. That's what God requires of us, to speak the truth in love. Will you make a fresh covenant with God today and with your church family? Would you make it either in your seat, but i encourage you to, and I've done this the last several weeks, and so few have made it in a public way I think this is so important today to the body of Christ that your brethren need to see you, at least a large number of you, down here saying, I will be vigilant and I will be verbal. And I'll join the deacons as they come to pray. I'll kneel here at the front as they do. We'll ask for a pastor who is willing to do the same thing. If you'll do that. Would you come? Come. Take this seriously and respond as we together.